0: You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be together tonight. Thank you for the warmth that comes for your presence, even if the heaters can't quite combat the cold. Thank you for one another. Thank you for fellowship, and thank you for your Holy Spirit. We want to take you at your word. We want to take you at your promise that where two or three are gathered, there you are in our midst. So here you are, Lord. We celebrate you and we celebrate your presence. And we thank you for, Holy Spirit, that precious promise that you will guide us into all truth. And now through your word, we, we want to claim that. I don't know what kind of a week you've had. But I want to invite you in the stillness to take a daring step and to ask your heavenly Father to speak a word of encouragement to you tonight. A specific word of encouragement. Now, I know that some, some of us find that easy, and perhaps tonight there's someone who's not finding that so easy. It doesn't feel natural to hear from God. But he's a good, good father. We often sing those words. even in our weakness, the Holy Spirit is able to testify with your spirit so that you can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. And even earthly fathers, though they're Fundamentally evil, know how to give good things to their children. Well, how much more your heavenly Father, who is fundamentally good? With one word, he can create something out of nothing. So imagine your situation, your deepest need. Just a word from God can speak into that. So, Daddy, we want to declare our trust in you tonight to speak to us. Just a word from you can bring new life, new opportunities, healing, restoration, forgiveness, cleansing, freedom, hope. Yes. Your grace truly is amazing. And we love you. We pray that you would pour it out tonight in abundance. Thank you. Amen. Well, it feels a little bit like our winter school of evangelism. We've been talking about being envoys of grace and and what does that What does that mean? And and um, sometimes I guess we refer to that in Christian circles as personal evangelism. And and uh, of course, when it comes to this whole whole area of of personal evangelism, it's a it's a part of this area of discipleship. We often define discipleship as taking others to the to the one that that we are following. Matthew 28. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples, and and well, part of that is, particularly if somebody doesn't know the Lord, is, is evangelism, explaining the gospel, the good news of the, the kingdom of God, the rule of God is here. And if we were to understand, I guess, what it means to be an envoy of grace, we we explored the fact we need to firstly understand grace. Now, oh, we sing that it's amazing, amazing grace, how, how sweet the sound, and and so forth but what does does grace actually mean what do we mean when we when we say that it is amazing and so we've been exploring that as as you know um, through two corinthians and and we've been looking at a number of chapters there and some pictures that paul gives us we came to chapter five and we came across this verse that well we are therefore christ's ambassadors we've been recipients of grace and now we need to pass that grace on we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, Paul goes on to say. Well, this is the, if you like, I guess one of the, one of the mandates that we have to be an ambassador for Christ. When we think about the best way for God to reach a fallen world, I, I guess if we were to brainstorm a little bit tonight, we would come up with a whole lot of ideas. And probably we, we each secretly have these moments whereby we actually wonder whether this whole idea, God making his appeal through us, is really a good idea. Actually, because we know what we are like. We certainly know what the person on our left is like. I mean, we know that this plan is fundamentally flawed. Or oh, you're right, sorry, I didn't mean to. But, but I guess we have times, don't we, when we question this great plan or scheme of God for evangelizing the world we wonder whether it really is the best idea, whether it wouldn't be better for him to just send a legion of angels and to do a little bit of smiting. Um, wouldn't, Wouldn't that be nice? But you know what? This is God's plan A. God chooses to make his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors. We're his envoys of grace. We've been recipients of grace, and now we pass it on to others as well. And I guess part of the reason that we feel like it might not necessarily have been the greatest idea, although we wouldn't question God, but it probably is, isn't it? Because, well, often in our endeavors to help others understand this gospel of grace, we, we experience a little bit of resistance, don't we? Well, we understand resistance. Uh, let me give an illustration. A couple of years ago, uh, we were holidaying up on the New South Wales coast, and uh, at the time, I was on the board of Christian Surfers International, and frankly, it had been a while since I'd actually stood up on a surfboard. So I thought, you know, here we are, none of the board are here, nobody would know. I, I'm, I'm going to take out a surfboard and see if I can rediscover that old magic that I used to have. Well, I couldn't. And after, a, after about an hour, I was exhausted. I dragged myself out of the surf, up on the beach, thinking, all right, good, failure. Is not final. Actually, no, it is in this case, and I was exhausted. And this panicked woman came came running up to me, and I was reflecting on this this week. And she starts pointing out about fifty meters back in the water, her uncle is drowning. Now this is a crowded beach; there are people everywhere, but but amongst the noise. Nobody could see him, nobody was hearing, nobody was looking except the relatives were were looking at this 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 guy and, and he was drowning and I thought, Boy, I know. you know, I've got to do something, but I don't even know if I'm up to this. Well there was no surf life-saving club in this particular area, so I thought, all right. So I paddle out to the guy and I get out to him and I'm exhausted myself and I can hardly get a word out. But I managed to Sound like I'm in control and it's okay, it's all right, I'm here, it's going to be all right, I'm going to get you back to the beach now. Hang on to the board, just catch your breath and and so forth and and we got back to shore and and fortunately it it, it all worked out okay. But I actually knew what that experience was like because actually my daughter Jade and I were were down at the the beach, oh, probably the summer summer just after that. And we have this coastline in Australia that is fairly vicious. And we like to teach all of our kids to, to swim, not to be fearful of water, but to understand or appreciate the, the natural forces. And so we were, we were out at uh, Sea Spray on the 90-mile beach down in South Gippsland, and Jade and I had just gotten ourselves into a rip. And well, you probably you know, know from your, your school lessons or your swimming lessons that you don't swim against a rip. And we got caught in a, in a rip on this occasion and uh, had to sort of calmly think it through and, and tell ourselves uh, everything within us just wants to swim back to shore. But we also knew that we'd only just stepped into this rip. We weren't far from a sandbank, and, and so we had to kind of discipline our mind, swim to the side, don't swim against it. Sometimes I think that's what it feels like, the natural forces, the context which which we live and minister in here in in Australia, indeed around the world, we we are working against forces of a spiritual nature which provide great resistance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, unlike just about any other endeavor, when we step out in evangelism, when we are trying to explain this gospel of grace, we actually must understand that this is a spiritual task and there are natural forces, indeed spiritual forces, that are working against us. So it's good to remind ourselves that this, this whole area, this ministry of evangelism is a spiritual work. The fact that anyone actually becomes a Christian, understands this gospel of grace, decides to place their hand in the hand of Jesus and say, help me, help me, Lord. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle that somebody can cross over from death to life, from darkness to life, from bondage to freedom, it is an absolute miracle. It is a spiritual work. It is something that, that God himself does. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. It is God who does this. Essentially, the, the spirit of a person needs to be awakened. It's like it, the inner spirit, the very soul or center or heart of a person is dead asleep. It needs to be awakened. God needs to enliven it. That is a spiritual work. So we need to, if we are going to embark on this, this whole thing, we need to be spiritually alert ourselves. We need to be in step with the Lord. We need to, we need to be abiding in Jesus Christ, and, and, and we need to be spiritually alert. Um, we need to, as it has been said, live in the world, but not be of the world. And we always need to, in this task, be spirit-directed. Well, there are three words which we wanted to explore, and we've been looking at this, this passage in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. We wanted to, to, to understand a few things. Firstly, the importance of noticing people. And sometimes the people that God wants us to notice, and this is where we really do need to be, we need to be in step with the spirit, the people that God wants us to notice aren't necessarily the famous people. As I was doing a little bit of research, I noticed there's lots of, lots of YouTube you know, videos and so forth about people reaching out and evangelizing celebrities and famous people and all of that sort of thing. And I've got to ask the Christian population, I guess, and us as a church and myself, what is our obsession with celebrities? Why do we think that somehow God needs celebrities to proclaim his name? rather than the lost and forgotten around the streets of Melbourne, the depressed and the the homeless and those who are shut in. What is our obsession with celebrities? We have to notice the people that God wants us to notice, and sometimes they are the very people that nobody else notices. Then we need to be listening to God. We listen to people and we take time and we we spend time hearing their story, but by the same token as we listen to them we're also listening to God and we talked a little bit about that last week and then the importance of sharing notice listen share and we wanted to talk tonight a little bit about what does it mean to share what do you share and and so forth and, and we'll do this a little bit in in two parts but but really let's read again this passage from from John chapter 4 Every time I read it, I see something new, and I trust that you will as, as well. John chapter 4, we'll read from verse 7, and, and actually we'll read to the end of the chapter. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples, you see, had gone into town to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, "'You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem.' Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Lord, would you again just bless your word to us tonight through your spirit. Help us to Help us to learn from from these verses. We notice, firstly, that that there are two aspects to this, and and we can learn from Jesus' example. When we're sharing, we we need to think a little bit about sharing our story and being being willing to do that a little bit, but then being willing also to share his story, the story of, of Jesus. Notice, firstly, what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't offer an answer to a question that she isn't asking. And I do believe sometimes that's where we trip ourselves up a little bit in our efforts at personal evangelism. Sometimes we try to answer questions that people aren't yet asking. Why do we do that? Well, sometimes for a bit of a cathartic release, we just feel a bit better after we've kind of spat it out. Other times, I worry that we at times think that we are God's defense attorney. And we take exception that people, you know, don't seem to to understand our Heavenly Father. We get a little bit defensive about that, and we feel, well, all right, God, if you're not going to zap him, I will. But you know what? That's possibly not the way. We can learn from Jesus here how to handle all sorts of things. Firstly, for instance, what about a contentious question? And the Samaritan woman here is being, at first, intentionally contentious. In verses 11, she talks about the living water and... But then she challenges Jesus almost a little bit. You know, the well is deep. um, You don't have a bucket. How are you going to get this living water? And then, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, even the the use of the words, our father Jacob, alludes to this common ancestry, which actually Jews and Samaritans didn't really agree on. Samaritans, just just to note, um, weren't necessarily considered to be that... uh, uh, those Jews most pure in terms of their doctrine and their practice. In fact, they were almost a little bit seen as a little bit cultish. And so, so she is actually being rather contentious here. Um, but Jesus has the ability, and it's, it's beautiful here, he has the ability to look below the surface. Now, when somebody is becoming argumentative, perhaps about, you know, all things, matters, you know, matters of the faith, it's good to actually look beneath the, the surface here. Sometimes, for instance, just beneath the surface of a contentious question or sort of somebody getting a little bit argumentative is, is actually hurt and pain. For some reason or another, perhaps their experience of Christianity, Christians, or the church has not been entirely positive. You may not know exactly what is going on in their life, but it is quite possible that there is, there is actually hurt there. Another reason that people can be a little bit contentious, and sometimes they don't even understand this themselves, they just know that every time this topic comes up, they get all worked up and tight inside, and it can actually be a little bit because of a religious spirit. That is to say that they have at some point in their life opened them up to some manner of deception or falsehood, which has allowed the evil one to actually get a little bit of a foot into their their lives and create something of a religious spirit, meaning that whenever they get onto a topic that pertains to truth, God, God who is truth, and so forth, something stirs within them, and they don't even know what the root cause of of that is. So it's handy sometimes to to know what you might be dealing with. What do you do about that? What do you do about a religious spirit? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You don't argue with it. You don't talk to Satan or argue with Satan. Satan. God himself is going to deal with that. But what you can do in prayer and led by the spirit is is try to deal with those issues that God reveals to you. Get beneath the surface and and so forth and Jesus does this does this in a beautiful way. I guess practically speaking when we when we think of we think of sects and cults here in Australia, and particularly in the US, we might think of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Or just so you know that that it's not just you who get them knocking on my door last Sunday after I was uh, speaking to you about personal evangelism, we got home and, and so forth, and there was a knock on the door, and, and uh, I happened to be the, the one who answered the door. Actually, I think at the time, I was heading out to get a little bit of firewood, so I was right at the door as they knocked, and the sort of door opened, and, and there they were, and it was, oh no, you know, <laughs> sprung. Anyway, no, actually, actually, I was, I was very happy to, to see them, and I, I, stepped, out, uh, I stepped out, and, and I had pretty... Pretty quickly picked who they were, and it wasn 't just the three of us because at that moment, Jonah the magpie, which we feed daily um, cheese, swooped in and started to sit on the railing and decided that he 'd be witness to the goings on and also check out if anyone happened to bring him his cheese. So the four of us were out there on the on the front porch and, and having a lovely conversation. Well it was sort of an older person and a young lad who was his protege, and he handed me a brochure and said we 'd like to give you this free brochure and i Quickly, it didn't have Jehovah's Witnesses written over it, but they did all over them. And I quickly realised, "Oh, J.W., you're Jehovah's Witnesses? No, thank you, I don't need this." But uh, we actually have quite different beliefs. I'm the pastor at Eltham Baptist Church, and and there was a lovely look of surprise to this to this little little truth. And and I I just put them at ease. I said, "You know, we probably have quite different belief systems." Now I have a little bit of a uh, it's not necessarily a method, but something which has helped me in relating to, to Jehovah's Witnesses, and and that is I, I I won't debate with them again because there is I believe a little bit of a religious spirit here, so I just told them up front. I said while well, I know we could get into a into a robust debate, couldn't we, about what you believe and I believe? But I'll cut to the chase here, and I said you see. I don't believe we could have any intelligent debate like compare apples with apples unless we are both working from the same Bible, which we're not, are we? You work from the New World Translation, and and that's actually a very different scripture. Now, who can have confidence that their Bible is the correct translation? And I said, because they seem to be giving me a little bit of a room for for this spiel, I said, well, I would imagine that if you wanted the very best translation that you possibly could get, you would need two things. You would need, firstly, confidence that you were having access to the very best manuscripts possible. And then secondly, you you would want to know that the very best translators available translators who understood Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, that they were the people who were actually translating from those manuscripts so that you could actually have confidence in your Bible. And I said, with my Bible, the Bible that I read from, right at the front page, it tells me the different manuscripts that they have used in compiling this Bible. Further, they actually tell us who it is that has translated these. Uh, You know, the the Bible, the new international version, for instance, that I use, there is a group of scholars and you can look them up on the internet and, and you can check them out and their qualifications. So by the time that I open up my English version, I have a lot of confidence that this is God's word. I said, however, alas, with the Bible that you use, that's not so, is it? Your organization has never shown what manuscripts they used for the translation, and they won't reveal the names of the scholars who have translated it. Therefore, how would you ever have any confidence that they are qualified to translate your Bible? You see, we just use different Bibles. I'm very confident of mine, just not confident of yours. And I guess, do you remember I was talking, I wasn't just being naughty here, but I was... Do you remember I was talking, firstly, we have to notice people and then listen, and then we share. In that listening, I was listening to God as I was was chatting, and I felt that the focus of my attention here needed to be to the younger lad. Probably, perhaps God was allowing me to just sow a little bit of a seed in his mind that, oh, things might not be what they seem. I also invited them to join us at Eltham Baptist, and, and then I said, so let's not enter a debate, but I will, off, I will give you this offer. If you would like, please come back sometime. We can work out a, a good time. Now's not so great, but come back sometime, and I'll, I'll give you 10 minutes of my time, and I'll just listen to you, and I won't interrupt. And in return, I would like 10 minutes of your time where you will listen to me, and I won't interrupt. If you would like to do that, please come back, and let's, let's make a time. I was hoping to see them today, but I didn't, which is a bit of a pity. In fact, every time I've used that, I've never actually been taken up on my offer of, of 10, 10 minutes, which is a little bit, a little bit um annoying. But you know, I guess with cults and so forth, we we need to understand that, as uh, as somebody has said, cults are the unpaid bills of the church. What they mean here is that when we have neglected to Teach from the Word of God. We have we have left some bills unpaid, as it were, and it has given themselves, you know, to um, erroneous teaching. Ravi Zacharias puts it this way: poor teaching and discipleship in many churches have made possible erroneous thought. In other words, error creeps in when we are not faithful to the Word of God. Now, when it comes to sharing your faith with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, many of you I know feel, well, oh, Either one of two things, a little bit fearful because you've heard that they have these tricky arguments and questions and things, and you're not quite sure how to answer them, or perhaps just frustrated because you actually have engaged them in conversation, and it's never actually gone anywhere. Well, I want you to, I want you to leave tonight knowing this. It's, it's actually quite simple. In fact, probably a whole lot more simple than you, than you thought. You don't need to know their arguments. You just need to know your story. You don't need to know all of their arguments, the ins and outs and so forth. Um, so here's, here's just a little bit, this, this may, may help you actually just grow in confidence. Um, so in, in terms of the founders, uh, both C.T. Russell and Joseph Smith were firstly a, a little bit of um, dubious character. Um, now, I'm not just saying that as uh, you know, somebody who you know, is uh, being a little bit un, unfair to, to them, Um, Joseph, uh, uh, sorry, C.T. Russell was born in 1852. Joseph Smith was born a little bit earlier, 1805. C.T. Russell was discredited for selling miracle wheat and making actually quite a bit of money off it. He was claiming that this miracle wheat actually would grow five times faster than any other wheat and so forth. It cost him a little bit more and so forth. And and anyway, um, uh, uh, I I think it was the... uh, um, Oh, a, a, a newspaper in the in the U.S. Um, basically wrote a report on him. He took them to court for libel, and he actually lost lost the suit. But but in that court in Ohio, he was actually admitted on oath that. That he was actually not very familiar with the Greek language, so that was it's kind of interesting. So that's all on public record. Joseph Smith was convicted of using peep stones uh, back in the 18, 1800s. That was a little bit like water divining. It was a bit occultic. You'd have these 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 stones in a hat, and and basically it would tell you where to hunt for treasure. And he and his father were obsessed with treasure hunting. And apparently one day, of course they you know he found these these golden tablets and golden glasses to read them and so forth. But, but anyway, both of them, and it is on public record, were of dubious, dubious character. Um, the other thing to, to note is that neither were schooled in biblical languages. As I, as I mentioned, on, on oath in a court, he admitted that he, uh, C.T. Russell, rather, was not familiar with Greek. But Joseph Smith didn't need to know Greek or any other biblical languages because apparently the gold tablets that he found were actually um, hieroglyphics of, of a language he called Reformed Egyptian, which is not a language that, that is actually known to anyone. And so behind a curtain, he would translate this to somebody else who, who kind of took, you know, took all of the notes and so forth, and that's how they came up with you know, their, their special books. And then the third thing to note here is that both cults have added to Scripture, Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses added to Scripture with the New World Translation, and there are um, no known translators, because they've not revealed the names, that actually have any biblical qualifications. Um, The Mormons, on the other hand, do accept the King James Version insofar as it's correctly translated, but now they have added other other documents which contradict the King James Version, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. And so those books, um, uh, they, they value um, as much, if not, if not more than Scripture. Well, they do value that more than Scripture. So they have, they have essentially added to Scripture. There's a very, very brief rundown on what it is that, that you're facing. So, how do you approach this? Well, firstly, I would say, don't be drawn into debate. Don't for the reasons that I mentioned before. Um, I, I still am yet to hear of a story of a converted Jehovah's Witness or Mormon who lost a debate and was won to salvation. It just doesn't seem to happen. And and so don't be drawn into debate. Be confident of your your Bible. Remember what makes a good a good translation: the best manuscripts and the um, and 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 the best translators. Um, just to here is here is a little little-known fact. In the front of your Bible, particularly you know, if you have NIV, but it, right in the front of your Bible, there should be, in the first few pages, a, a little bit of a, a word to the reader, and it will tell you about two things. It will tell you about the manuscripts that were used to translate your Bible, and it will tell you a little bit about the the authors as well. So here in, in my Bible here, um, for instance, it reads, for the for the Old Testament, the standard Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, as published in the latest editions of Biblica Hebraica, has been used throughout. It, talks, it goes on to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Um, it talks about uh, the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, the Syntatic Peshitta, the Aramaic Targums. It talks about all of the different manuscripts that go to make up this Bible. There it all are. It's all, all revealed there. You can have amazing confidence in, in, in this, this, this Bible that you pick up and take for granted in its, you know, here it is in its English form. In actual fact, did you realize that the, the number of manuscripts, this is like no other book. Now I get a bit excited at this point, but this is like no other book that you could read. There is nothing else like it. In the 1700s, it was thought somebody made a, made a list or compiled a list of the various manuscripts, that we were able to draw from to end up with what we call the modern-day bible it was over 615 manuscripts in the 1700s later on in the 1700s somebody else compiled a a list of um, uh, manuscripts found in the libraries in england and on the continent and they came up with 731 they were starting to find them more and more they were coming out Then in 1890, in Cairo, um, there was another discovery of manuscripts. And in Cairo, in particular, they they discovered 260,000 Hebrew manuscripts, 10,000 of which are biblical manuscripts. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovery in 1947 added another 200 biblical manuscripts to that. And, uh, and, and then, of course, um, more, more recently, um, in, 19, in the 1960s, um, um, another 14 scroll manuscripts were added that were discovered in Masada. And so we have an incredible amount, many of these over a 1,000 years old, we have an incredible amount of manuscripts that make up the data that we are drawing from. Isn't that incredible? There is more evidence for the existence of many of the characters in in the Bible, then exists for you. What do you have going for you? A driver's license, a passport, you've got all your points of identification, and yet you've got nothing, got nothing on most of the characters that are recorded in Scripture. Um, It's an incredible book. It's an absolutely incredible book. And and then, on top of that, you've also got, also in here, is the record of the number of... um, you can go to, for instance, the International Bible Society. So the Committee for Bible Translation, and that's usually rather than listing the names because they're sometimes changing as people are called to to glory and so forth, but the Committee for Bible Translation are listed here. You can go to uh, the International Bible Bible Society, biblical.com, and you can look at accuracy and clarity and and here they actually list the various some of the various scholars about 15 in all i've just given you a picture of three you can see that they're real people you can see their names you can look at their biblical qualifications you can see what 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 color shirts they like to wear oh, what what have we got there burnt orange blue and black you can you can actually find out here are real people with real qualifications who actually understand the biblical languages that that they are actually translating from they have real degrees from real universities You can have confidence in the translation that you have in in your hand. And so, so it's helpful to actually understand that as you are talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, that the translation that you have, the Bible that you have in your hand is like no other book in existence. No wonder it's a bestseller. It is an absolutely amazing book. There's nothing like it, and there never has been. In the history of mankind isn't that incredible that god has given us so much tangible evidence for this book no wonder as christians we love it no wonder as christians we need to defend it it's a fantastic book amazing book and so we need to we need to um offer that advice that for any any translation that you're going to get you want to have the best manuscripts you want to have the best translators and then if you like and if you're feeling feeling bold you can actually um, give them the make the offer to them as well that for ten minutes of their time you'll give them ten minutes of yours as well and what would you what would you share in in that 10 minutes? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment, but you would share a little bit of, of your story of testimony. Now not every time is a question of a contentious nature. some people are genuinely seeking truth and and it seems that Jesus discerns in her second second question verses 21 to 24. Uh, that, that she is asking a genuine question about the proper place to worship. This, is, this was an ongoing concern there. Uh, and uh, uh, verse 19, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Hey, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Again, it was a little bit of a contentious matter, but Jesus seems to treat it as, as a genuine question as well. And so he goes on and he treats it so, and he corrects her very gently. He says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, actually. Again, digging beneath the surface. And then he corrects her. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. He was unapologetic for that, for salvation is from the Jews. Then he goes on, yet a time is, is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth they will worship in a whole different fashion the actual place the physical place that you worship will no longer matter because of the spirit of the coming of the spirit of god there is a place for understanding when a question is genuine and to and to treat it as such and there is a place in that regard for what we call apologetics well, apologetics Um, is a misunderstood word. It sounds a little bit like we're giving an apology. Oh, excuse me for my Christianity. No, not at all. The place for apologetics is to give a reason for our faith. It's not, by the way, to make faith reasonable. That's impossible. You try to to make reasonable the Christian faith. Um, It it, it doesn't make sense, humanly, humanly speaking. Now, when it comes to apologetics, be encouraged. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to know everything at all. Otherwise, well, where would the need for faith be? Rather, when you hear a genuine question, a really good question, you can always make people an offer. That is, that is a great question. Acknowledge a good question. That is a great question. Would you like me to see if I can find an answer to that? That's a great little approach to go with because of course it, it helps Two things, it helps test whether the question is genuine. If somebody says, nah, I was just messing with you, well, okay, <laughs> they've missed. Ah, well, it also tests, perhaps, whether that's the real question. some people might ask this question, but as you offer to try and find out some information about that, they suddenly realize, no, 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 that's not the heart of it. If you really were going to do some research on my behalf, what I really want to know is this. And uh, you need to have confidence that, you know, you can walk away with a question. And in no way is, is that a comment on your effectiveness as an evangelist. Um, you can always approach the pastoral team. Not that we know everything, but the one thing most of our training has taught us is that you can find good answers. It will never Not answers that will ever replace the need for faith, but there are a lot of good answers out there. And we would love to, to help direct you to them. One place that you could go is, is and this is just one of many apologists um, around today, but this chap's name is Jay Warner Wallace. He's actually um, uh, full-time a cold case detective with the Los Angeles Police Department. And he's also on staff at Biola University. He's also uh, quite well-versed in all things theology as well. So he's a homicide detective, that's his job, and, uh, and, and basically he's looking into cold cases. In other words, um, they, they take out an old file where the case just didn't go anywhere, and uh, they try to find any surviving witnesses and so forth, and they, they work through the data that they have, and, and there's a particular process well, he was he, Jay Warner Wallace some years ago would have described himself as an, an atheist and an evidentialist. In other words, I only believe what there is evidence to believe. And uh, based on that, um, and trying to answer you know, some questions that were put to him by Christians, he, he looked into the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ and being true to his nature open to truth and and really just wanting to to dig beneath the surface and get to the bottom of all things but using his skills as a cold case detective guess what he decided that there was sufficient evidence to conclude in fact more than sufficient evidence to conclude that Jesus Christ really was who he said he was. He became a Christian, studied theology, and now is a great apologist. And on his, on his website there, and as I say, he's one of many apologists. On his website there, you can, you can delve into some things and find some, some helpful answers to various questions. But then we see that when it comes to, comes to sharing, um, there is also the power of, of testimony. And here is where telling your story or understanding the power of telling your story is very, very important. In this passage, we we see it at this point. The woman seems to conclude that what you say is good, Jesus, and uh, so forth. And yes, yes, yes. And I know that, well, ultimately, this is a lovely conversation. But one day the Messiah will come, the Christ, and... Well, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. You and I, a simple Jew and a simple Samaritan woman, can't expect to understand all things, can we? And so one day the Messiah will come and he'll explain it all to us. And now comes one of the shortest testimonies you will ever hear and one of the most powerful. Jesus says in giving his testimony, I, the one speaking to you, I am he Wow, there it is. There it is. And it's very interesting that John ends this particular part of the passage here. He goes in a little bit to the disciples arriving and so forth, but this woman is so touched and so profoundly affected by that declaration of Jesus, That she immediately goes into town. She has moved from that point where she understands, sorry, Jesus, she's aware that Jesus understands her situation with her many husbands and so forth. He understands all of that, and yet he's not just a prophet, is he? Could this actually be the Messiah? She goes into town and is so excited, her enthusiasm is contagious, she brings a whole bunch of people back and actually invites Jesus to extend his stay in that area for another two days, which they they do. She's profoundly affected by this declaration. The power of testimony, it's it's quite something. When you and I testify, and this is is why I make that little offer to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, if they will listen, and that is, I'm happy to listen to you for 10 minutes. Why? (laughs) Because I'm pretty confident in my faith. It doesn't really want to matter what they say in that 10 minutes. They can go for it. You know, Hat off to you. But then if you will listen to me for 10 minutes, I know that I have something that they don't. What is that? It's the Spirit of God within me. And I'm very, very happy to testify to the difference that Jesus has made in my life. Now, a little bit more on that next week. But just to say in that 10 minutes, if I could go without any interruption, I would love to give a testimony about the power of God in me. That's the main difference. What is the difference between me standing there and them standing there? The spirit of the living God actually resides within me and has made an incredible difference to this this guy's life. It's a difference that is with me every single day. I wake up with it. I go to sleep with it. I'm a changed man because of that. And I know that difference. I know the power of God in my life. I know I'm not just a good bloke. I know I'm not just a decent human being. I know that I'm not just a a nice gentleman. I know all of those things. I know what I would be without Jesus. Jesus makes the difference. He lives within me, and it's changed everything. And that testimony, I love to give. You know something about your testimony, your story? It's subjective and it's irrefutable. No one, can, no one can refute it. When you talk about your experience of Jesus Christ living within, the impact that he's made on your life, when you talk about that, do you know what? There is, there is no one on planet Earth who can actually refute that. If that is real for you, What can they say? What can they say? Jesus' testimony was quite simple. I am he. Now, we don't get to say that, by the way. But our testimony is equally simple. He is him. And he lives in here. Yeah, amen. He is he. He is, he really is. He's who he says he is, and I know it. It's my personal experience, and it's a powerful thing. You know, when we were, um when Jade and I got caught in that little rip at, at Sea Spray, we were, with, um, we were with my friend Dave, Dave Wake, and, and uh, Dave was just, when we are out in the surf, sort of just, just jumping the waves, there was actually nothing to catch that day. We are out there because, because it was summer and we should have been. It just felt right. But it was a terrible day and the, and, the, and the waves were terrible. And anyway, he was just to the right of us. We were just to the left and we moved a little bit too far, got caught in this rip. But Dave was always just to the side. And so as we were just getting, getting pulled out with this rip, again, instead of trying to swim against it, we just knew to swim to the side. And Dave was just there. He stood his ground and he stood like a marker. All we had to do was swim across it, across the water to him. And eventually, we just kept doing that without panicking. Again, discipline the mind. Just swim across it. Swim to, you know, and I, I remember saying today, swim to Uncle Dave. We're almost there. Just a few meters. Keep swimming. Swim to Uncle Dave. And he was just there standing his ground as a little bit of a marker. Come to me. Come to me. You know, that's what we're really doing in evangelism. Sometimes we get caught up in arguments and debate, and we think, we think the thing that we're supposed to do is, is be really clever and persuasive and, and try to go against the tide, the resistance that, that we're encountering. Not at all. Not at all. The same principle for evangelism or for discipleship is true of evangelism. That is, we just take people to Jesus, swim across this, cut across all of those arguments, cut across the pretension, cut across it all, and take people to Jesus. Keep it simple. Just come with me to Jesus. He has the answers. Just come back to Scripture. It is written jesus it's all about jesus and we need to remember that i think in our personal evangelistic efforts that at the end of the day we are taking them to jesus you know when we try to understand a little bit of this um i know sometimes we steer clear of revelation because it's got sevens and tens and dragons and all sorts of things and it gets a little bit confusing at times but one of my favorite chapters is chapter 12 it makes so much sense of the world in, in Revelation chapter 12, we read in verse 4 that um, a little bit alarming, actually, that, that, a, that a dragon who represents Satan, as we discover in the, the passage as we go down, is standing in front of, of the woman, and the woman is the people of God, who is about to give birth. The people of God is about to birth someone very, very special. Of course, we know that that is looking at the genealogy. Um, that is provided for us in Matthew, we know that it's going to be Jesus, don't we? So the dragon is standing in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. However, as we know, Jesus was, was protected, and we know through those various birth narratives exactly how God did that, don't we? And her child was snatched up to God ultimately. Think about the ascension of Christ Jesus and to his throne. Well, the woman the people of God, the church now, flees into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of. We all want to know what that place is, don't you? Don't you have those days where, please God, would you tell me where that place is where we can flee into the wilderness, a place prepared for us, where we might be taken care of? Well, that's the first reference to it. There's another reference in the moment, and I'll tell you where that place is. But there is a war in heaven, and of course the dragon is cast down to earth, which seems wholly unfair to those of us who are on earth. However, God's got a plan. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And he is filled with fury, by the way, because he knows that his time is short. So here is this here is this picture of the, of the evil one, and and he is thrown down to earth and there's two things we know about him that he is on a very tight leash now and what do you know about an animal that is on a very tight leash and knows their time is short they are filled with fear Well, they thrash around like nothing else don't they they are filled with fury and that's exactly what, what Satan is like but we are told that the the saints the saints overcome how chapter 12 verse 11 it's beautiful They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. So we are not alone in this (laughs) when the dragon was hurled down to earth. No, the provision has been made. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You might be wondering what is the power of my story? What is the power of testimony? power is pretty awesome. These saints that overcame the dragon, they were willing to die for their testimony about the blood of the lamb and so overcome the dragon. Your testimony, your story, when it takes people to Jesus, it's this declaration that the blood of Jesus which was shed for you, the atoning blood of Jesus, is enough. That testimony is a powerful thing. And that is your testimony, by the way. It's, it's not that, that moment where, how, where however old you were, you invited Jesus to come into your, to your life. That was a significant, powerful, and beautiful moment. It's miraculous what God did in that moment. But he continues to work in your life. Your testimony is the ongoing Testimony of a Savior who lives within you. It's the ongoing testimony that every day you enjoy intimacy with your Heavenly Father because of the blood of the lamb, which atones for all sin. It basically means that as your accuser stands in heaven and says, you're kidding, look at them, look at them. They can't be a part of your family. They can't be one of your children. They can't be. As your accuser stands in heaven, leveling accusations and allegations against you, Jesus steps into the middle of that and says, I got this covered. Jesus says, Father, was my blood sufficient? And the Heavenly Father says, absolutely. The blood is sufficient. You've got this covered, son. You've got this covered. You are covered by the blood of the Lamb, and that gives you intimacy with your Heavenly Father day after day after day after day. It's why you go to sleep at night and you say, oh, I thank you, Father, that if I was taken tonight, I would be in your presence. Jesus, you loved me. You gave yourself for me. Your blood was shed for me. I'm good with you. You know where your eternal future and hope is. It's the power of the blood. That's your testimony when you wake up tomorrow morning. That's what makes this week different. Jesus has you covered. Whatever is coming your way, Jesus has you covered. It's all covered. The blood of the lamb. Now, you have that testimony. And it's a powerful testimony that you have. That's your story. That's your story. And that is a story that the history of the church tells us many have laid their life down for. And the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. The kingdom of God continues to advance, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. It's a powerful story. That's your story. Maybe this week God will give you some homework and an opportunity to share it. Jesus, if that opportunity comes our way, we thank you. Remembering that this is a spiritual work from start to finish, we thank you that your Holy Spirit will enable us, will give us the words, will help us to notice, will keep us in step with you as we we listen, will give us the words, and will help us to stand firm, even to the very end of time itself, will help us to, to be able to give an account for the hope that we have within. We thank you that by your blood we overcome. Every day we overcome. Whatever trial, whatever challenge, whatever faces us, you have it covered and the promise is we will overcome. So thank you. Thank you. Lead us, we pray this week. And if it is your will, would you please give us an opportunity to share some of our story, which is really your story. You are who you say you are. You have us covered. That gives us an unquenchable hope. And that hope is for everyone. Thank you, Jesus. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.